Uh, last week, we introduced the year with Psalm 1. And the questions that we ta- tackled last week were questions such as, uh, what is happiness? What does it mean to be blessed? How does one stay in a, in a continual state of blessedness? And we saw how Psalm 1 answered those questions, but there's more. Because Psalm 2, it continues to answer those questions. In Psalm 1, we saw that we are to delight in God's word. We're to continually meditate on his truth. But here in Psalm 2, we see that we are also to embrace the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as your king in humble submission. And we see that Psalm 2 is a continuation of Psalm 1. And how do we know that? Well, if you look at the last line of Psalm 2 in your Bibles, at the end of verse 12, you will see that it reads, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Blessed are those. And it has that same pattern that Psalm 1 has. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so with that, we see Psalms 1 and 2 together serving as an introduction to the whole rest of the book of Psalms, all 150 of them. And so Psalms 1 and 2, it's an introduction of how we are to read the rest of these psalms, these psalms that are full of praise, of of laments, of cries for help and prayers for forgiveness of sin. And so these anchoring concepts, these two concepts of meditating, delighting in God's word, and finding refuge in Christ alone, that is to be the anchor upon which we stand as we go through all of the Psalms, go through life in Christ alone. And so let that be our hope and our anchor, even as we study uh, this word. There's a hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is that true for you this morning? As we look in his word, Christ, be my foundation, be my rock. Let's pray as we seek his help. God, no persuasive words of man can convince us or persuade us of our need for you. No extravagant music, no nostalgia, no emotion can determine how you meet with us, only Christ alone in your grace. So God, we look upon you now. Speak to us. We are desperately in need of your word, for without it, we will die. Lord, may your word be our bread, be our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, One of the hallmark traits of a really good movie uh, is the ability to progress through multiple scenes, this this great storyline from beginning to end. And so, for example, a great movie, say that there's a movie of multiple heroes, and they're all joining forces to fight this one villain. 
And what that movie will do is it'll focus on one hero. Perhaps he's mobilizing all his friends and all his heroes to fight. And then it will focus in on another hero. Say that this hero, uh, he's infiltrating uh, the enemy's base. And then the next scene, and say that this scene is focusing on the villain and how he's preparing for the battle. And all these scenes are taking place at the same time. And at the end of the movie, it climaxes into this final battle scene. And we see all these characters and all these people come and they converge. And we see this final battle take place. And that's how many good movies progress their storyline. And that's how we can approach Psalm 2. To see it in, in multiple scenes that are happening at the same time with different characters and different places. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it even physically, how it's broken up into four different stanzas. Verses 1 through 3, space. Verses 4 through 6, another break. Verses 7 through 9, and then verses 10 through 12. Four different scenes with that final scene converging starting at verse 10, where it says, Now, therefore, and we've been teaching all of you that when we read those words, now and therefore, that it should mark a sign that, okay, this is the main takeaway of this passage. So what are these four scenes? Well, scene one is taking place on earth. And on earth, we see kings with a lower case K gathering to, to resist the king with a capital K. So we see resistance. Scenes two and three, it's taking place in heaven. And in heaven, God, he laughs at these kings' uh, resistance. And in scene three, he establishes his anointed king with a capital K. And finally, the camera zooms back to us in scene four. And we're asked this question, choose your king. Choose your allegiance. Who will you serve? And these scenes, they provide the three headings uh, for this morning. Number one, our ambivalence towards the king. Our ambivalence towards the king. Number two, why we are that way. And thirdly, how to be free from it. Number one, our ambivalence towards the king. Number two, why we are that way. And number three, how to be free from it. So let's go. Number one, our ambivalence towards the king. A little background here, Psalm 2, uh, it's the first of a category of psalms, uh, this category that we call royal psalms. And there's a handful of them through the Psalter, and they're called royal because it describes God's king. Oftentimes, the Davidic kings, the kings in David's line who ruled the nation of Israel. Now, this particular psalm, Psalm 2, some scholars think that it was recited or sung during a coronation service or when they installed a king in Israel. And in Psalm 2, we see as God's king is installed, this psalm, it reveals how we as a people respond to that king. And that response, I think the best word to describe how we view God's kingship is that word, ambivalent. Now that word, it's not a word we use often, but it accurately describes the condition of the human heart towards how we view kings and kingship. Uh, to be ambivalent means to have, what, two contrasting feelings about something or someone. You feel one way towards about someone, and at the same time, you feel the complete opposite. 
It's kind of like a love-hate relationship. It's the same way that I feel about late-night snacking. I hate it, but I love it. The same way that I feel about stretching. I, I hate it, but it feels so good. About exercising, I hate it, and I still hate it. I'm not ambivalent towards exercise. And that's how we tend to view this notion of kingship. We're ambivalent because we need a king. We want a king. We love kings. And at the same time, we hate the idea of a king, and we resist them. So let me explain how we are ambivalent. On May 19, 2018, there was an event that happened, an event that demanded everyone's attention. It broke records all over the world. Perhaps some of you guys know what happened on that day, which shows us how eventful that day was. May 19, 2018 was the day where Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, the British royal family, married Meghan Markle, receiving her into the most prestigious royal family in the world. Do you know how many people around the world tuned in to watch that wedding ceremony? 1.9 billion people watched that wedding ceremony. There are 7.5 billion people in the world. That's about a quarter of all people watched that one wedding, royal wedding. 1.9 billion people. Do you know, to put that into perspective, in America, the most watched event is the Super Bowl. Last year, how many people watched the Super Bowl? 108 million people in the United States watched the Super Bowl. 1.9 billion people watched the royal wedding. It doesn't even compare. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people are so fascinated with this royal family, with Meghan Markle, so much that if she's ever seen wearing any kind of accessory, the next day it's sold out in all stores. Why are we so interested that when a royal couple has a baby and they name that baby a particular name, guess what the most popular name that year is going to be? Why are we so fascinated with kings and the royal family? Why do we adore them? Why? Because you and I are made to adore kings. We are made to serve kings. Look with me in verse 7. God tells his king, the anointed, which means the Messiah, the coming king, he says, you are my son. And that's important because that tells us about the relationship between God and the king. That's how Israel and all these ancient nations saw their kings. They were the sons of God. And to be the son of somebody it meant that you resembled them. You took up their traits. You did what your father did. And there's this intrinsic relationship between God and his king, between father and son. Very different from the way that you and I view our identities today in our individualistic society. But even a few hundred years ago, there was much of this idea. Back then, if your father was a farmer, Guess what you were? A farmer. 
If your father was a baker, you were a baker, which is why we have a lot of these last names. So-and-so carpenter, so-and-so shoemaker, so-and-so baker. Because your identity, your occupation stayed within the family. You resembled your father. That was only a few hundred years ago. In Genesis chapter 1, 26, it says that the God of the universe, he makes man in his image, his son, Adam. And to be made in the image of God, it meant you resembled God. Adam was to reflect God's traits, love, wisdom, righteousness. In regards to who he is as a person, as a being, he is to take up after God. Furthermore, in regards to what he does, he is to take up after God. Not only in his being, but what he does. And what Adam was to do, was to rule over the earth the same way that God ruled the universe. God says to him in Genesis 1.28 to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion, kingly language, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And that's where we get this creation mandate to have authority over the garden, over all the earth, to to name the creatures. God is telling Adam, do what I do over the universe. Be my vice regent. Take up after me. Resemble me. Therefore, inherently in us, there is a desire to be like our Father to want to embody him, to want that resemblance between king and his son. And there is an intimate connection between the two. But for us, rather than wanting to resemble the heavenly king, rather than wanting that bond, we prefer to have millionaires as our represented kings. We tend to have celebrities, sports figures, superheroes, There is a biblical reason why our sons and our boys like to dress up like Spider-Man on Halloween. They look up to them. They want to resemble them, to be like someone, and that's innately in us. That's why our daughters want to dress up like Wonder Woman or, or, or Michelle Obama even. Why? There is this desire to be like your king, to be like the one you revere and you adore. Have you ever wondered why this city is so fascinated with Mick Foles? Have you wondered? Do you know why we even see him kind of like this king of Philadelphia right now? Why? Because he represents Philadelphia, and we represent him. He stands for what Philly is all about, doesn't he? It's not about how many times you fall, but how many times you get up. That's Nick Foles, who's been rejected time after time at being this backup quarterback. But you know what? He wins the Super Bowl. Have you ever heard around the city, although you might feel like all your life you've been this second-rate backup quarterback, but if you keep trying and grinding, one day you will succeed. That's Nick Foles. And for all of us, we feel like that resonates with us. That's like our lives. I feel like I've been second rate and a backup quarterback all of my life. And he has this connection with me. He represents me as king. And we love that. We love him because he represents us. He embodies 
Philadelphia, and we embody him. We see him as a king. It's the same reason why we love books like Chronicles of Narnia and stories like King Arthur and the Sword and the Stone and, and Lord of the Rings. Listen to this. Tim Keller, he writes this. The reason why we adore kings and even create them is because there is a memory trace in the human race, in you and me, of this great king, of this ancient king, one who did rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory, such that it was like the sun shining in full strength. And we know we were built to submit to that king, to stand before him and adore and serve and know that king. In other words, in every one of us, there is this innate desire to want a king, to adore a king. We need a king. Now, here's where the ambivalence comes in. Because you and I as Americans might listen to this and scoff at the notion of us wanting a king. Because we tend to have this notion that, that kings are something of the past. We read about kings in fairy tales or, or history books because that's what nations back then had to resort to because they weren't as developed politically. And we tend to think that democracy is the highest form of government and the idea of kings are things of the past. Furthermore, we've seen in history that kings are tyrants. Every king in the past, from, from Louis XIV to, to Queen Mary to Adolf Hitler, all of them has shown that mankind has done so much to break the shackles of the monarchy and to establish this free government. So in all honesty, verse 3, it resonates with us very much so. Let us break their bonds apart. Cast away their cords from us. Down with the monarchy. Down with tyrants. They can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Our democratic world treasures individual rights. And we view monarchy and kingship as being ancient and primitive so much that when we read scripture and when we read that Jesus is your king, we try to manipulate that to mean that Jesus is not our king, but he's like an advisor. An advisor who gives suggestions on how you are to live our lives, never as the commands of a living, real king. C.S. Lewis writes, when we come to Jesus, we come always looking for someone to help us and to love us, never to rule us. And therefore, we don't take seriously when this Bible says that Jesus is the king of the universe. We love the fact that he's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our healer and comforter. And as true as they are, he is also our king. He needs to rule our lives. He demands our allegiance and obedience. And there's this temptation to group Jesus along with all these other fairy tales in the past. Because those are for primitive people. We surely don't need a king. We have legislative government. We have democracy. We don't need a king. But just because politically we don't serve a king, all of us will end up 
serving, a king. And we can't shake that off because in us there is a desire to adore them. Regardless of whatever government you are in, we still pay homage to kings, whether you are aware of it or not. We honor billionaires, athletes, film stars, celebrities. They are our kings. We resemble them. We want them to encapsulate us. They represent us, and we worship them. We are ambivalent towards kings. Number two, why we are ambivalent, why we are that way. Now, let's think about why there's such mixed feelings towards kings. Now, if I said, as I mentioned, that God created us in his image, he created us with this innate desire to, to adore kings, and if that's how he made us, why do we resist? Why is there such a struggle and ambivalence? That's what verse 1 is asking. It's asking, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why is there such resistance to this heavenly king? In verse 3, it gives a clue. It says, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And this verse reveals how we tend to view our submission to this anointed king. Because in verse 3, it draws an image, a picture of a yoke. A yoke that is around the neck of a donkey or an ox. And what that yoke does, it, it controls it and tells it where to go. It also shows who owns that animal. It's clear in very various places in the Old Testament. Job chapter 39, it says, Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the yoke, the bonds of that donkey? So we think about that image, the reasons why we resist is because, number one, we do not want to be owned by a master. And number two, we don't want that master directing the way that we should live. And that's why we have mixed feelings. It's not because we resist the idea of a king, because that's innately in us. We can't help it. But what we don't like, what we resist it's the idea of someone else being our kings and not ourselves. That's the difference. We like the idea of kingship. We like the idea of us being our own kings. But we resist the idea of Jesus, of someone else having control and authority over our lives. We want to be our own kings. Think about a toddler. Paul Tripp, he writes that children are like self-anointed, self-sovereigns who think that the only authority they need in their lives are their own. He says, your little boy, believe it or not, that cute little boy, he actually thinks he's the king of the house. Your cute, precious girl, believe it or not, she actually thinks she's the princess. And they're not born with this natural affinity and this commitment to the kingdom of God because they are sinners. And what sinners do is that they tend to see submission to authority as, as forsaking their own freedom. They have a greater commitment to the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. And we can see this in young children over what they want to eat, when they want to go to bed, what they want to wear, don't we? Because in those situations, the battle is not, it's not over your child wanting to eat ice cream. 
and you wanting him to eat something healthy. It's a battle of kingship. When you fight and struggle with putting him to bed early, he doesn't want to sleep. It's not a battle of whether he's tired or not. It's a battle of kingship. And that's the same with us. The battle of kingship happens inside of all of our hearts when we get irritated or annoyed when things don't end up our way. Because what happens is that in those situations, we see our control being let go from us. We see someone else or something else, some other situation having control over our lives, and we complain, we get annoyed, we get angry. And that's what happens when our plans don't pan out. We lose our control and power and authority to powers outside of ourselves. And everywhere we go, in every situation, there is a power struggle for kingship. That's why Paul Tripp, he says, we struggle. Because our greatest allegiance is to ourselves. And I'll add to that. Because we hate the idea of someone or something else being in control of our lives. And we live out our days plotting, taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed, grumbling throughout the day. I can't believe this happened. Things never happen the way that I want them to. How come he's not listening to me? That's verse 1. Actually, if you look closely in verse 1, you'll see that word plot. Why do they plot against the Lord? In the Hebrew, that plot is the same word in Psalm 1 where it says, meditate on God's word. Where we study how meditate means to murmur, to keep telling yourself. And in contrast in verse 2, that same word happens, plot. And it shows this contrasting view of how the people of God, they murmur and meditate upon God's word. And the people against God, they murmur and complain and grumble how things don't happen out that way, their way. We're not in control, but God is, and we hate that. And while all this is taking place in this first scene, what's happening in that next scene, starting at verse 4, we zoom in on heaven, and how does God respond? He laughs. He holds earthly, self-appointed kings in derision. And that means he holds them in contempt. Now, when he's laughing, it's not saying he's just being cruel, but his laughter conveys just how ridiculous it is for these kings to respond the way they do in verses 1 through 3. It's to show just how unreasonable this is. While we plan and counsel against the Lord, while we try to burst our bonds apart and cast off this allegiance to Jesus, how ridiculous it is. That's why there's laughter. And we hate this control so much that we will make decisions with our own minds, with our own wisdom, even when they hurt us. Even if those decisions will destroy us, because at the very least, we can say, I control my own life. I control my own destiny. You know, when I was younger, I used to play a game with my friends. Not really a game. I was just kind of being annoying to them. But I thought it was kind of a game where... If you have a group of guys, there's something that happens where each guy tries to establish their authority and their leadership over the others. 
So there was always this constant struggle on who's the king of this group, who's the leader, who's the baddest, who's the strongest, who's the most athletic. And we all thought that we were individually, I'm the leader of this group. Now what would happen is, as we try to assert our authority over that person, and if we are able to get that person to listen to what I say, then clearly that shows he submits to me. I'm the king. I'm the leader. But the problem is that never happens, right? Because as soon as I tell my friend to do something, who do I think I am? They laugh in my face. But here's how I went around that. So picture with me a Saturday afternoon. All of my friends were gathered around in my living room. We're watching a TV show. And my friend, he gets up and he leaves the room. And you know what I tell him? say, Trevor, go to the bathroom. That's right. And he stops. <laughs> I'm eating lunch with my friends at the cafeteria, and I see my friend Jason eating a bologna sandwich. You know what I say to him? Jason, eat your bologna sandwich. That's right. See how you have to submit to me? You listen to what I say. Now, my stupidity and my arrogance is not the point here. But here's the point. When I tell Trevor... Go to the bathroom. Listen to what I say. What he does is he stops and he sits back down. Even though clearly he needs to go. And he will even risk damaging his bladder rather than listen to me. Jason, rather than eat his sandwich, he will drop it and say, I'm done anyway. I'm not hungry. And he will go hungry for the rest of the afternoon rather than listen to my words. And what that shows is, as ridiculous as that sounds, that's how we live our lives. That instead of listening to the Lord, instead of wanting Him to make our decisions, we rather make our own. And 10 times out of 10, we know that it's the wrong. You know that it's going to hurt us. It's going to destroy us. But as long as we can say, I made my own decision, and we suffer. That's what verse 12 says. We will perish in the way as we continue to decide for ourselves, as we continue to let ourselves be our own kings. We will allow ourselves to suffer. How many times in our lives have we suffered because we took control of our own lives? How many wrong decisions have we made? Because we want to be able to say, I decide my future. I decide my own destiny. We do the very same thing with our lives. When in Psalm 1, the Bible tells us that our state of blessedness lies in this word, and it directs our lives for worship. But we would rather choose our own reasoning, our own ideas, what people have to say around us to govern our lives, don't we? When we read that our ultimate purpose is to glorify Him forever and to have our enjoyment in Him alone, what do we do? We enthrone ourselves, make decisions that ultimately benefit us, and we rarely think twice about God, His glory. How does this bring glory to God? How many times do we ask that question? And time after time, we set ourselves up for disappointment after disappointment because we're entrusting our lives to ourselves. And at a certain point, it becomes ridiculous, where it deserves laughter. It becomes laughable, because how many times, time and time again, do we hurt ourselves? It's just as laughable as my friend going hungry the rest of the day. 
that Jesus Christ came into this world to die for your sins. He came to be your Savior, but that wasn't his end goal. He became your Savior so that he could be your King. He came to save us from ourselves, and he came for your allegiance. Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, 15. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's saying, let me be your king. Find rest in me. Our final point, how to be free from this ambivalence how we can be free. We go back and we see as much counsel and plotting and scheming and, and resisting there is, it doesn't change the fact that God, he still establishes Jesus as his king. He says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now we're going into this final scene and it's zooming in to each one of us. And it's zooming in to see how we're going to respond to this king of Zion, whom the Lord establishes. So we see in verse 10, here's the final punch, the main takeaway. It says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss, kiss the son. And kissing means humble submission to the king. And here we see there are two responses to Jesus' kingship. And to portray that, I want us to go back to the Christmas story. Think back with me. When Jesus was born, he came as the king that the world was longing for. Let earth receive her king, correct? And to his coming, the Bible, it describes two responses to Jesus' kingship. And those two responses are portrayed in King Herod, and the wise men. And King Herod, he was one of the most ruthless rulers of Israel. And the reason for that was because he was so terrified of losing his throne. History shows that he got to the throne through deception and murder. And because of that, he held so tightly his throne. He was afraid, he was terrified, he was paranoid that he was going to lose his kingship. So much so that he killed his own sons because he was afraid that they were going to usurp his kingship. So much that he built all these fortresses to squash any revolt and rebellion. You can go to Jerusalem and see those fortresses today. And he was terrified. And he did whatever he could to hold on to his throne. And then we hear, in light of Psalm 2, in light of Isaiah 53, in light of Micah 5 2, that there is a king of kings coming. And he's to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, how does King Herod respond to that? He schemes, trying to find a way to get to this prophesied king. And when he can't find Jesus, we know the Christmas story. He orders all the male infants under the age of two to be killed and slaughtered. And that's what he's doing because he's holding so tightly onto his kingdom. He'll do whatever he can to keep his kingdom. 
And on the other hand, we see the wise men. And they, on the other hand, they give up kingly gifts to Jesus. What were they? Frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And have you ever thought why they gave those three things? I mean, think about it today. If you visit the hospital, someone who recently gave birth, are you going to go to Yankee Candle, give them some frankincense, give them some gold that has no monetary value in itself unless you cash it in? You need diapers. You need baby formula. But they gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why do you think they did that? Because it symbolized that they are submitting to Jesus as king. They were kingly gifts. They were precious. They were valuable. They weren't practical. And on the other hand, these wise men freely give up what is precious in their hands because they receive Jesus as their king. There are two responses to Jesus being the king of your life. One, you can hold on tightly to your own kingdom of you ensuring that you make your decisions, you control your life. You can hold on to that more tightly. You can try to be more in control. Try harder. Schedule your life more efficiently. Try this tactic. Try this method. Or you can be like the wise men and say, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my most prized possessions. And if you hold on to your kingdom, you will go to the extreme. You will be self-consumed. You will be destroyed, as verse 12 says, just like Herod was. Or you can respond like the wise men. What are you holding on to? What is your throne? Is it your freedom? Are you afraid that once you give your life to Jesus Christ, that he's going to make all these restrictions and limitations On the contrary, just like the fish needs the limitation of water to swim freely, you need the limitation of God's word and his goal for your life to find the most precious thing to be the most free. What is your throne? Is it your children? Do you believe that you know what's best for your child more than God? the one who wove each cell of your child's being, the one who determined how that child is going to live for him and his kingdom way before you even existed? Are you more concerned about ensuring your child's success more than you establishing God's kingdom in your life? What's your throne? Is it your future dreams, your aspirations, your career? You ensuring that you hold on to this job so that you can provide for your family? What is your throne? Your freedom, your children, your life, your money? One day they will all perish. They will rust. Your children will leave your home. My older sister just got married. Time after time, my mom says, you get abandoned anyway. There's no use in having kids. I have no one in my life. All the while, my father's standing in the room. (laughs) She says, it's pointless in having kids. Everything will vanish. 
and you will face Jesus Christ. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Verse 12, kiss the son. Blessed are those who take refuge in Jesus and gain him forever. Two responses. Hold on to your kingship or freely give it up. And if you do the latter, think about what you're getting back in return. And it is Jesus. The reason why the wise men were able to give up those precious things because they knew that they were receiving something far greater Jesus himself. They'll say that they gained Jesus, this Jesus, the king who came down from the heavenly Zion, the one who left his kingdom. A kingdom where the heavenly hosts are singing and worshiping him. A kingdom where Jesus was in perfect contentment in the Trinity. But Jesus, unlike Herod, who so desperately held on to his kingdom. Jesus freely gave up his kingdom to gain you. Unlike us, who are so desperately trying to hold on to our little kingdoms and our own pleasures, Christ did not desperately hold on to his kingdom, but he freely gave it up. Jesus, as God, emptied himself taking the form of a servant, took the form of man, left his kingdom, left perfection, took on a body that is acceptable to sickness, death, temptation, so that he could gain you. Now gain him. Receive him. And once you truly understand what Jesus has bought for you, what he has saved for you, what he has done for you, only once you realize that can you freely give up your gold your frankincense, your myrrh, your life, your children, your freedom. Offer up your throne to Jesus and you will gain something far greater for he will give you a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that can never be taken away. Offer him up your life. Give him your life. Be so jealous for God's glory that your utmost concern day in and day out is the question of how can this glorify God and then make a decision so that when you do see Jesus face to face today tomorrow or years from now that you can honestly say to Jesus Jesus with the years that you've given me I can say I've honored you and I hope my life brought you much glory as my king. Rest in that. Find refuge in that and let go of all other fears. Do you know about this rest, this refuge in Christ? Have you ever gone to bed at night knowing that the only thing that matters is whether or not you brought Christ more glory this day than before? And that you can entrust everything else on to him to know that all the concerns that you have is far better in the hands of the universal king than in your own. Have you rested in that? There's nothing like it. These past few weeks, 
I've been having a lot of conversations with my friends overseas. And as you might have heard, there's a lot of opposition and persecution in the country that Joanne and I are hoping to go to. And earlier this week, I was talking to my friend, and this friend tells me that right now, that it is the first time that the government says we have the right to hold any foreigner in our country if they do not adhere to our religious policies. And my friend tells me, Luke, you need to have serious conversation with your wife and to your team members and tell them it's different now. Where in the past, the worst they could do is kick you out. And you tell them there's a chance that you might not leave. I struggled with that. Every night this week, I couldn't sleep. And I tried to think in my head all of these scenarios. What is? Trying to console myself. Saying, you know what? We'll be okay because we're going to be more careful than others. We're going to be okay because, you know, they're just trying to scare us. Or we're going to be okay because I know my way around that country. We'll be a little bit more savvy and navigate those waters. No matter what I told myself, no rest. By the grace of God, my friend tells me, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All I know is that I need to rest in Jesus. Because he knows you. He knows your life. He knows your child. He knows your dreams. He knows everything about you. Give it to him. Glorify him. He will take care of the rest. For God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not also graciously give you all things. I don't know what's keeping you up at night. I don't know what your throne is. Whatever you're holding on to so tightly, won't you give it up? Gain something far greater. Jesus. For he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.